Thank you very much, Yvonne. Just before I begin, two things. I'm delighted to see so many friends of the audience. On a hot day, it's a bit cooler in here. And the second thing is I'm a little alarmed that this could be a, meant to be a portrait of me. Um, I hope it's not, but if it is, run away, like the character at the bottom. Swift and books. Now, the late 17th century, into which Swift was born in 1667, was a time of considerable intellectual and cultural change. The medieval world of monkish learning and control by the churches was under threat from 18, 1485 onwards as the new technology of printing with movable type assisted Protestants in the spread of the Reformation, Catholics in the vigorous response in the Counter-Reformation, and Renaissance scholars all over Europe in the distribution of editions of the classics. Manuscript copying and circulation gave way in all parts of Europe except Irish-speaking Ireland to printing, and eventually, of course, to bookshops. There was a, I'll just begin with a couple of words on the background. A, couple, a certain amount of printing in late 15th century and 16th century England, but there was virtually none in Ireland, which was during these periods in an almost con constant state of unrest. You'll remember that the English policy of planting countries that subdued was vigorously pursued here. Tudor and Elizabethan plantations in Munster and Leinster, and Ulster plantations in the northeast. The settlers brought printing presses with them, and small amounts of material were printed in 17th century Ireland, but the market was limited and fragmented, and most printed material circulating in Ireland before the year 1700 came from England or from the continent. Even in England, it was not until the 1640s that printing began to influence social behavior. You will remember that during the English Civil War, there were printed newsletters of all kinds, each one purporting to supply readers with the latest true accounts of skirmishes and sieges, and most of which were completely made up. They had a considerable effect on morale, however, and this was the beginning of false news, which as we know today has quite an effect all over the place. People began to question the authority of the printed word. Now, in Ireland, particularly a problem that surfaced during the 1670s and 80s, in the case of the Popish plot, but also with the false Protestant printings of Robert Ware, a wonderful forger, somebody I want to write a book on sometime, and many rumors that circulated when James II ascended in 1685, by which time Swift was an undergraduate in Trinity College. As the English book trade expanded rapidly after 1660, it brought with it editorial and other problems. Increase in books of all kinds, together with improvements in distribution, led to a plethora of cheap, poorly edited editions of translations of the classics. In addition, thousands of broadsheets were printed for the street trade. They were assiduously collected by John Evelyn and Samuel Pepys. There was also an expansion of the printing, printing of books of history, Catholic histories, Protestant histories, histories of witchcraft, histories of the countries in the Middle East and the Far East, and Swift himself read histories of Ethiopia and Siam. There was considerable interest in Persia and Japan and Formosa and exotic places that are all uh, written up in Richard Hadlitt's Principal Navigations, Voyages and Discoveries of the English Nation in 1589, and all the followers of Hadlitt. You can see where Gulliver's Travels comes from. In addition, there are lots of volumes of secret histories about the sex lives of Protestant and Catholic monarchs, 
and indeed about the, the sex life of the Pope. There are several books on that as well. And there are, of course, romances and plays. And the wave of printed material washed around English-speaking Ireland and was absorbed as much as anybody by the undergraduates of Trinity College. There's abundant evidence that throughout his life, Swift was a lover of the printed word and an avid reader of books. It was not until after he left Trinity in 1689 that he could count on a steady income from the parishes he held as an ordained minister of the Church of Ireland. He was ordained in 1695. But it wasn't until then that he became a collector of books. But rather like many of, in this, many of us in this room, as soon as he got a bit of money, he would spend it on books. In his later years, he was also a donor of books. When he was 60 years old, Swift wrote, when I am reading a book, whether wise or silly, it seemeth to me to be alive and talking to me. Dangerous that, but at the same time, he wrote it very clearly and he said it more than once. One way in which he maintained the relationship with the books, the, the text he was reading, was to talk back to them by commenting in the margins of the books he was reading, asserting his opinion in side notes, annotating the text, and sometimes writing a full praise or paraphrase of the book. I'll come back to that in a minute. After Swift left Trinity, he went to England for some while, and he obtained employment as secretary to Sir William Temple, a retired diplomat. Temple had a very fine library, through which Swift could range at leisure. And here he developed his love affair with the classics and with travel books, reading very widely in Renaissance editions of the classical favorites, Virgil, Ovid, Horace, and Lucretius, for instance, as well as in scores of lesser writers and in travel books. Many of these classical texts were being re-edited in Swift's time, and the market, as I've just said, was flooded with translations. Big disputes arose as to whether classical works by the ancients were superior to contemporary works by the moderns. Much ink was spilt on the disagreement between the ancients and the moderns. Due to changes in the copyright laws in 1695 and 1710, the economics of the book trade were also being turned on their heads. For the first time, writers or editors of books, rather than booksellers and publishers, received payment for their work. This meant that it was possible now for an individual to earn a living as a writer. The moderns seemed to be trouncing the ancients. There were also still patrons who might subsidize a book and subscribers who might agree to buy it on publication. But the author owned the copyright of what he'd written. The market expanded, books became cheaper, scores of printers set up shop in England and a growing number in Ireland too. Much of the work they produced is not very distinguished. It was aimed at commercial success rather than intellectual advancement. But Ireland and England were flooded with this type of publication by the end of the 17th century. Swift had very strong ideas about what was correct and proper, and he was outraged at the outpourings of Grub Street, which was the which you now use as the term for all uh, cheap, cheaply produced printing, uh, produced to order. It was named after the street in which many of the hack writers lived in London. Swift decided the best way to show his disapproval of this phenomenon was to satirize it, which he did in his first major work, A Tale of a Tub. Now, you will see, all of you, as you leave, 
because I think it's not permitted to leave until you have seen the exhibition up the side here, which has all of Swift's great works in it, and of course, Tain Batal is there. The, it's a brilliant satirical work, and it's a parody of Tain Batal. It was published anonymously in 1704, and was an immediate success. The supposed author is a hack writer who will write anything for money. They existed right up to the 1780s, 1790s. It was a wonderful man called Richard Lewis who uh, operated out of Dravere Street and who would write anything for you for money. He would write petitions to Parliament, love letters, long poems. He would write novels. He would write travel stories and so on. And he would write anything. The perfect hack writer. Um, there were several in Ireland, but Richard Lewis is always advertising. And Swift created this hack this imaginary hack who wrote a tale of a tub. The tub is the empty barrel that sailors throw out of a ship when this, uh, the, the ship is about to be turned over by some sea monster. So they throw out a barrel, so it is a kind of decoy. Or put it this way, this is a tale of something which is empty and has no value, like a floating barrel. And this is shown in the book itself. If you pick up a copy of a tale of a tub, you'll find that it's a long, a good amount of reading before you get anywhere near the tale. First of all, there's a list of absurd imaginary treatises wrote by the author, which includes a general history of ears. Then there's a title page that asserts proudly that this book is written for the universal improvement of mankind. Sounds like ads for all sorts of things one sees for a place in the west of Ireland to renew oneself. It's an, there's then an apology for the po with a postscript. There's then a dedication. There's then a letter from the bookseller to the reader. There's an epistle dedicatory to Prince, Prince Posterity. There's a preface. There's an introduction. And finally, after 40 pages, you get to the text, which begins, once upon a time, there was a man who had three sons. In other words, all that stuff leading you up to what seems like a nursery tale. And those who pick the book up or are reading it from the beginning, expecting it to be about something momentous for the universal improvement of mankind, are being made fools of. In fact, it's a parody of a book. And within the text itself, there are as many long digressions, including a digression on digressions, as there is other portions about, of the story itself. The digressions are full of absurdities. And whenever the argument seems to be getting complex, the key point is replaced by rows of asterisks and a remark such as, here the manuscript is faulty. In other words, it is a book that's all froth and no content, all promise and no delivery. Read you a quick passage from section seven of A Tale of a Tub, which is, section is, is the title of the section is, A Digression Concerning the Original, the Use and improvement of badness in a commonwealth. The speaker is the hack author. The present argument is the most abstracted ever I engaged in. It strains my faculties to the highest stretch. I desire the reader to attend with the utmost care, for I now proceed to unravel this knotty point. New paragraph. There is in mankind a certain dot, 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 dot dot, 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 d
footnote, hic mota desiderata. In other words, there's a lot missing here. Dot, 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 dot. And this I take to be a clear solution of the matter. New paragraph. Having therefore so narrowly passed through this intricate difficulty, the reader will, I'm sure, agree with me at the conclusion that I have just found. In other words, there is no conclusion to this argument because the argument was pointless in the first place. Now, I have to say that there is no book in this library of the Royal Irish Academy that is pointless or useless. Every book here is of the greatest value to scholarship and to us all, and Siobhan looks after them with great care. But there are out there books like A Tale of a Tub in the bookshop, three for the price of two. Pick it up, it's hardly worth the bother. Now, this in a sense is what Swift is talking about. He's actually getting us to understand that, and to be delighted as we do understand, that there is a reformation that we need to carry out in our, in our minds. Not to allow ourselves to be drawn into the kind of ridiculous world of a tale of a tub. We enjoy the intellectual gyrations of the book, but we must recognize that there is a danger that we might get immersed now in 2017 in the self-referential world of sterile scholarship. For example, some aspects of scholarship on James Joyce seem to me to be getting in that direction, or that of cheap sensationalism. And I have really no time for um, festivals which are organized by the local hoteliers in order to fill their rooms, always around a literary figure. Be careful of that. Anyway, if we recognize the kind of uh, excesses to which those who appear to have, who purport to have intellectual, uh, something intellectual, say, the excesses to which they can go, we need to watch ourselves. It's the time to reform ourselves if we notice any of these elements in us. And it's true of most of the Swift works over there. What content there is in the tale of a tub is a simple story. As I said once upon a time, there was a man who had three sons. The man, old man, is God. The three sons are Peter, the Catholic Church, Martin, the Anglican Church, and Jack, the Presbyterian Church. Peter keeps dressing up and laying down the law. He has three hats on quite a lot. Martin keeps quiet and compromises on everything. And Jack is a raving lunatic, thumping the pulpit, dashing around, declaring that everything is preordained. What Swift is satirizing here is not Christianity, but the excesses and follies of the Christian churches. Equally, he's satirizing the self-satisfied and solipsistic world of authors, publishers, booksellers, and gullible readers, the excesses and follies of the world of the book. As he put it, his aim was to demonstrate the numerous and gross corruptions in religion and learning. And he seduces us by delighting us into the book where we can see the excess follies of those who are being parodied. We enjoy being shown human stupidity in an exaggerated modification, and Swift expects us to learn from it. Throughout his life, Swift was alert, particularly to pride in human beings. Stupidity is one thing, but pride is another. Deception is one thing, but self-deception is another. Just think about it sometime. Self-deception is one of the great ironies of human behavior, and Swift saw it 
time and time again and exaggerated it. But he also saw pride in the behavior of Catholics and Presbyterians, parliamentarians, courtiers, kings, various individuals. He saw it in all forms of printed matter. The satirist knew what he was talking about. He himself read so voraciously. Tale of a Tub drew heavily on the books in Sir William Temple's library, and Gulliver's Travels drew heavily on the large collection of travel books in Marsh's library and in Swift's own collection, which I'll talk about in just a second. Most of the books uh, of travel uh, were of great use to Swift because, although many were in Latin, he read Latin and French easily, and of course, he could understand many continental languages, Italian, Spanish, and some Greek. Many of his pamphlets are contributions to debates being carried on in printed, printed warfare, different pamphlets being exchanged. Sometimes the pamphlets seem to be straight, as in a, contest, a discourse of the contests and dissensions between the nobles and commons in Athens and Rome, a long title, but it's for an interesting pamphlet contributed to the debates between Whig and Tory in London in 1701. Sometimes the pamphlets that he's adding to a debate are horribly ironic, as in a modest proposal for preventing the children of poor people and Ireland from being a burden to their parents or country and for making them beneficial to the public in this first edition over there. This, of course, is a pamphlet designed to shock us all, particularly Irish landowners and government, into action to alleviate the suffering of the poor. 1729, particularly relevant because Swift was living in Ireland at the time, and there had been appalling famines in 1720, bad harvests followed by famine in 27, 28, and 29, and many hundreds of poor people crowded into the city, and of course, the, uh, the authorities couldn't do much about them, because of course there's no such thing as social security, and each with the responsibility of a parish. But the parishes weren't taking the responsibility, nor were the landowners, nor were the government, and the modest proposal is designed to shock us all into taking the plight of other human beings seriously. Sometimes people say that Swift was a bit of an innocent, but in fact, he was very familiar with political theory and economic theory, and there is, behind a modest proposal, very sound economics. The only problem is it lacks ethics and morality. But then, so do some economic programs. In every case, in every book in those uh, display cabinets over there and everything he wrote, Swift was intervening with energy to set his readers right. In other words, with a kind of, almost a way of entertaining us into the right rather than a sermon. He did, of course, write several sermons, but they're much less interesting than his uh, ironic texts. Usually he uses irony. For example, in a wonderful pamphlet called An Argument Against Abolishing Christianity in England. It comes from the wonderful position that since nobody is going to church anymore, there is, should be an act of parliament to abolish Christianity. And then he writes ironically saying, but that's not such a good thing. What are you going to do with all those parsons? And think of how much it would cost to keep the churches going. I mean, the buildings. I think we shouldn't abolish Christianity after all. And of course, what he's doing here is he's turning us into people who can see human folly through this satiric exaggeration. 
he also did a wonderful parody called A Meditation Upon a Broomstick. Uh, <clears throat> Lady Temple was very keen on the meditations of, of Boyle, uh, who wrote meditations on all sorts of serious things. Um, and Swift wrote a meditation upon a broomstick, which was read to the old lady, and she at the end said, very, very impressive that he, that this religious writer can write on such a subject. And Swift was delighted with the satire. However, deep down, despite the satirist in him, he wanted to be a historian. He said that time and again. He wanted to write history. And it was one of his favorite reading, uh, reading history. He's particularly keen to do this uh, in his, his history of the four last years of Queen Anne. Last four years of Queen Anne's reign, 1710 to 1714, for the first three of those four years, Swift was very close to the London government of Harley and Bolingbroke. But that government was rivered with squabbles, and they employed Swift to write a, a paper called The Examiner, and he wanted to patch up the, the squabbles between Bolingbroke and Harvey, and, uh, and um, <clears throat> Harley. And he uh, went on all his life determined to publish this book. But of course, if you read it now, you see it's fatally flawed. It's not a history, but a propaganda. And he couldn't really see the difference in himself. But in a sense, uh, we can see him jumping ahead of himself because he does say elsewhere, satire is a sort of glass, that is a looking glass, wherein beholders do generally discover everybody's face but their own. That was true of himself as well as it is true of us. It was, of course, the foundation of a satirical wit that we recognize the failings which are being exaggerated, satirized, and we should turn away from them. We should correct ourselves. Just to turn briefly to Swift and the book as an object. He, Swift had a serious love of books, not just their contents, but the objects themselves. He purchased books throughout his career. Writing to Esther Johnson and her companion, Rebecca Dingley, from London in March 1710, he told them, I went to see poor, poor Charles Barnard's books, which are to be sold by auction, and I itched to lay out nine or ten pounds for some fine editions of fine authors. That's the equivalent today of laying out about 2,000 pounds on books. Books were expensive in those days, but it's interesting. He itches to do it, but he doesn't do it because he can't afford it. Incidentally, we can see exactly what he did afford, because one of the treasures of the Royal Irish Academy is one of his account books, which is over there. And you can see clearly how carefully he kept account of every expenditure, including every piece of postage. He would not be happy with Unpost and its rising of, of the cost of posting at the moment. But Swift was, was fascinated by all kinds of printed material. Not just books, but also the, the uh, broadsheets. And one of his biggest spoofs was to take the, uh, he, he was very uh, interested in the fact that astrology was one of the uh, <clears throat> matters that was constantly being handed around in the streets. And the, the man who was writing most of it in London was a man called Partridge. And so Swift wrote prognostications as if they were from Partridge, and he printed them in exactly the same black letter type and format of, as Partridge's astrological prophecies, with the same woodblock and so on. And he announced 
the imminent death of Partridge, and subsequently a report of the funeral of Partridge. A lot of people went around to the house to see what was going on and to commiserate with his wife, and Partridge appeared at the window and said, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive. But, of course, the idea of foretelling the future is what Swift is satirizing here. Uh, in, and he does it in such a way that one is drawn in completely into the text because of its physical appearance. Key question for early 18th century readers was, of course, how much one could trust the printed word. Real news and fake news again. And Swift was told by friends that one Irish bishop heard saying that he didn't believe a word of Gulliver's travels. Swift was delighted to hear that because, of course, Gulliver's Travels is presented as if it's a true account of the travels of Lemuel Gulliver. Nice copy over there. And you'll see, uh, at least if you read the text, the author gives the dates of his sailings, the details of the weather, and <clears throat> the maps. There are maps of the places which uh, he's meant to have visited. And again, I think one of the maps is open there. In fact, if you go to Australia on because one of the, because Huynan Land, Huynanim Land, or Land of the Horses, is meant to be just off Australia, there is a signpost on the shoreline pointing out to sea, saying Huynanim Land, 40 miles or something like that. So somebody has a sense of humour. <coughs> maybe not. Maybe one should go and see if it's there. Anyway, the maps make it look all real. Some of the islands are just off Vancouver Island, some are in the South Seas, all over the place. It's only when the reader is asked to believe in six-inch high Lilliputians, giant Brobdingnagians, mad people in a flying island, rational horses, and yahoos who are their servants, that we begin to ask questions. And the key question is, can we believe what's in this book? Can we believe what's in any book? Can we believe what is in print? So Swift, the writer, is angry at human nature, and he reckons that the way to get to us is to seduce us into works, works, books, readings of various kinds, which make us drop our guard, and we think we're in the presence of something real, and then the exaggeration takes over. And we're able to see human folly, human uh, pride, particularly. In Gulliver's Travels, for example, where Gulliver explains with great pride the power of the armies of Europe uh, and the king of the uh, Brobdingnagians simply says uh, <clears throat> he cannot understand how nature ever suffered uh, such vermin to crawl upon the surface of the earth. In other words, if you stand outside the human condition, stand outside war, for example, and try and justify that, you can't justify it. And so in a sense, we are vermin to engage in this, and it's all to do with Swift's technique of changing perspective in that book. So the very sense, what he's trying to do all the time, is to make us, seduce us into the book where he can, if you like, give us a kick because of our humanity. It might help to understand what kind of books he had. Well, we know that Swift built up a very substantial library over the years, and we have the auction catalogue of the sale of his books in 1746. The catalogue lists a total of 657 lots, which is quite a lot for a, a, a collection of books at that time. In his life, twice earlier, he had made lists of the books he'd read. 
And the 1745 catalogue um, was published uh, in facsimile, and so we can follow all that through. But the first thorough, minute description of the volumes in Swift's library was undertaken in the 1990s by two German scholars, Heinz Finken and Dirk Passmann. Their four volumes, the four volumes that they brought out, is entitled The Library and Reading of Jonathan Swift, a biobibliographical handbook of the library and reading of Jonathan Swift. It is essential reading. It is actually still available from the publisher. I looked at it up yesterday. Um, it's a fantastic four-volume book. And it gives full descriptions of all the books Swift is known to have owned or consulted, as well as an account of the history and transmission of each text. They give the reader a short assessment of the life of the author and notes on the significance of the writings for a late 17th or early 18th century reader. And Swift's inscriptions are also included. And the four volumes of the work are a treasure trove. Now, the bulk of Swift's library was editions of the classics. But he also had hundreds of, um, well, not hundreds, he had dozens of anthologies of classical works, theology, sciences, travel, and history. And in his own works and in his letters, he referred to over 2,000 writers whose original works are in many languages, in Latin, Greek, French, Italian, Spanish, Dutch, Danish, and English. But the strange languages have all been translated into Latin or into English or French. So in addition to consulting the books he himself owned, he made use of the libraries. His friend Thomas Sheridan, uh, the, uh, who had a school in, in Grafton Street and uh, lived also in County Cavan, had a good, found a fine library of classics and in fact wrote an interesting uh, school books. He wrote sort of cribs of Perseus and various other classical writers. But Thomas Sheridan's a fascinating man. Uh, he, Swift used his library. And he also, of course, had used the library of William Temple. In fact, one of the books from William Temple's library came up for auction in Sotheby's last week with Swift's writing in it, Swift's signature in it. So in fact, what, what we now know is that Swift actually appropriated the books from Temple's library after Temple died in 1699. But he was the literary executor, so he had a certain right. But not all of us go ahead when we're literary executors and take all the books and put our name on them. That's another day's work. As for books about Ireland, there are 30 of these in Swift's catalogue. And they include key works by Sir William Petty, John Temple, and Simon Madden, as well as a number of books of poetry presented to him. I mentioned Swift's habit of annotating the books he was reading, sometimes in books he borrowed. It's another thing we shouldn't do. But yes, I did get a book I read once back from somebody who put lots of notes in the margin. Uh, I wasn't. They were in Byro, too, which is a bad idea. But Swift's marginalia are famous, particularly his dislike of the Scots. He firmly believed that they were the cause of Charles I's downfall. And he wrote vituperative remarks on them in the margins of a copy of Clarendon's History of the Rebellion and Civil War in England, a copy which is in the Marshes Library. And the sort of things he wrote in the margin, the cursed, hellish, villainy, treachery, and treason of the Scots were the chief grounds and cause of that execrable rebellion. Scots are scoundrels, dogs, hellhounds, fanatics. What's just the Scots? There's a extraordinary book, a man called James Gibbs did the first 15 Psalms of David into lyric verse. 
And Swift wrote, I warn the reader that this is a lie, both here and all over the book. These are not the Psalms of David, but they're the Psalms of Dr. Gibbs. And again, when Gibbs's text reads, and this their bitter cup must be to drink to all eternity, Swift comments that the second line should be to taste the doctor's poetry. So it will be, and this their bitter cup must be to taste the doctor's poetry. As for books coming alive, well, the early text, the Battle of the Books, imagines an epic battle fought in St. James's Library, which was the Royal Library in St. James's Palace, which then became the library of the British Museum and is now the British Library, the basis of the British Library. And if you go to the British Library in London, you can see the books uh, and they're <coughs> arranged in the centre of the, the new building. But the Battle of Books is of books, the classical and modern texts in the Royal Library. And there's an epic battle between them. The books rise up and attack each other in an attempt to settle the row between the ancients and the moderns. And um, craftily, Swift avoids saying who won, because the manuscript, like so many of the manuscripts, is defective. Of course, just when he decides he's had enough of it, he just puts this is defective, dot, 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 and leaves it to you. The um, Battle of the Books is, however, one of the great themes in the Tale of Tongue. It's the madness of pride that lies behind the Tale of a Tongue and Battle of the Books, when critics believe that being readers of works makes them equal to the creators who works. Because one, some of the fights are between creators and commentators. So if you read a book, you have to remember that you haven't actually written it. Finally, a couple of words on Swift's habit of giving books. He gave books, which he much treasured, in two ways. He sometimes gave a book to someone he admired, writing an elaborate dedication on the flyleaf, either a book that he treasured or a book with which he'd been involved. Now, he edited Sir William Temple's letters and his miscellaneous writings. As he presented copies of these handsome folio books to leading politicians and world figures with long, elaborate inscriptions. And also, you often find uh, <coughs> in books that he gave ex-dono uh, autore, either if it's if one of his own books, or um, he puts his name sometimes his position as Dean of St. Patrick's. But he also, towards the end of his life, after he'd returned to Ireland as Dean of St. Patrick's, which of course he did in 1713, much uh, against his will, but in the end of his life, particularly after about 1725, he became interested in uh, younger people for whom there was no proper schooling. And he wanted them to be taught to write correctly and accurately particularly girls, and he gave a number of copies, uh, quite a lot of dictionaries, to girls uh, who were the daughters of friends or uh, acquaintances. He compiled a list of hard words for his friend Esther Johnson, Stella, and the manuscript is now in the Library of Trinity College and is on show in a wonderful exhibition there, which is curated by Jane Maxwell, who's here today. And that manuscript is fascinating. What were the hard words for a girl? And he also gave this particular book to a young girl. And in the front of this book, this book is the English Expositor Improved, a complete dictionary teaching the interpretation of the most difficult words which are commonly made use of in the English tongue. And it's by a man called John Bullocker, and it's the Dublin 1731 edition, printed by Sam Fuller. 
on the flyleaf of this book. You can see it. Anybody who wants to come see it afterwards can do so. On the flyleaf, the recipient, who was the daughter of Mrs. Whiteways, which housekeeper, has written in a barely legible and orthographically unsophisticated script, the gift of Docker John Swift, Dean of St. Pat's, Dublin, May ye 5th, 1736. She's trying to learn to write, and she's practicing in this book that he's given her. Taylor Swift wanted his love of writing and the books to pass from one generation to another. And I hope this little girl found his gift not only reforming, but a pleasing one. Now, I've only talked about Swift and books because that's the, the subject which I gave myself. But at the same time, there is so much to be learned about Swift uh, and a lot of extremely good new books have been coming out about Swift. But the best way of starting to learn about Swift is really to see the books themselves. And I hope that before anybody leaves, well, I hope that you will have a good look at this exhibition, which gives findings a good uh, idea of the strength of the holdings of the Royal Irish Academy and the holdings also the exhibition and trinity of the holdings and trinity. So there are really wonderful holdings uh, in those two libraries and indeed in the Gilbert Library in Pierce Street. So if anybody wants to get on working on Swift, there are lots of places to do it in Dublin. Thank you very much.